0: I, uh, I dearly, dearly uh, love, love this man, and he's uh, been preaching for 51 years, and he's having some, some some memory issues, aren't you, a little bit? A little. A little bit. Do you think you could pray for me and lead us as we pray? I think so. Could you try it? Sure. Okay, buddy. Yeah. Would you pray for me? Heavenly Father, we stand here today aware of who you are and what you do. I thank you, Father, for this pastor here that has come to share the gospel with us today. I pray, Father, that you'll bless him and speak through him, that we all may understand what your goal for all of us is? Amen. I thank you for your kindness to each of us. Now bless us in this service, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I love you, man. I love you. We open down. It it's been a long time since I've been in church with him and- and he's preached all over the country, in revivals, and uh, just a, a great, great pulpiteer, great pastor, loved people, and uh, had a tremendous effect upon my life. Um, uh, he's still our pastor. He's still our pastor. He's still our pastor. So God is good. I was thinking about, as the choir was singing, he will hold me fast. Uh, I was thinking about Jesus' promised to us. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand, for my Father who gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them from my hand. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to, uh, guess guess where? Uh, The book of Esther, okay? And uh, so we're uh, working through this book, and I want to begin this morning by asking you, can you think of a time in your life when you suffered some kind of punishment or suffered some kind of consequence when you were trying to do everything right, when you were trying to live right, when you were trying to make the right kind of choices and decisions to honor God. And so you're doing your very best to be faithful to the Lord and then something happens where you just feel like the rug of life has been pulled out from under you. There's an example of that in the book of Genesis. You remember the story of Joseph? As a teenager, uh, his brothers were jealous of him, and they hated him and wanted to rid themselves of him, and so they cast Joseph into a pit and sold him to some Ishmaelites, heading down into the country of Egypt, and he was sold into slavery. Once he arrived in Egypt, you know the story. He was purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And Joseph must have been asking some questions. Why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong to deserve this? And without any answers and in spite of the injustice, Joseph remained faithful to God. And in time, God began to bless his work, and he gained favor with Potiphar. He received a promotion. Potiphar set Joseph in charge over everything that he owned. And the Bible provides a little detail regarding Joseph. It says that Joseph was handsome and well-built. And at some point, Potiphar's wife Joseph was so handsome, so well-built, that Potiphar's wife began to take notice of him. And evidently, she liked what she saw. And with bold intentions, without any shame, she invited Joseph to be intimate with her. Do you remember how Joseph responds? He does the right thing. The Bible says he refused her advances and asked her, how could I do such an evil thing? And sin against God. May God give us that kind of clarity and resolve regarding sin in our lives. However, if you know the story doesn't end there, Potiphar's wife was not easily deterred, and day after day, the Bible says she began to pressure him, and Joseph remains resilient. He does the right thing, holds true to God, and clings to his convictions. Then one day with no one else in the house, the palace is empty. Mrs. Potiphar becomes more aggressive and she grabs Joseph and tries to entice him. And with one last ditch effort, Joseph chose to run and to run fast. And the shameless hussy was left alone holding his garment. Having been spurned, she concocted a lie. And when Potiphar, her husband, comes home, she tells him that that Joseph, that scoundrel, came on to me and attempted to force himself upon me. And in his anger, Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. He was innocent he had chosen to do the right thing, to continue to trust in God, and his immediate reward was incarceration. Without any hope of parole, he spent years in a prison cell. But God. But God. God has his own plans for Joseph's life. God preserved him and eventually positions that young man to save his people. The point of the story is Joseph did what was right. He lived his life to please God, to be faithful, and without any fault on his own, without any failure on his part, he suffered injustice. And while never recognized and never rewarded for doing what was right, God in his providence was still in control. God was still keeping score. Most of you can identify with Joseph's story. You've done your best, not sinless, not perfect, but you feel like you've done your best to honor God with your choices. You've tried and are continued to try to do what's right, and like Joseph, it feels like life has handed you a bag of lemons Have you found yourself thinking, God, I know I did the right thing. Why are you allowing all of this stuff? I've done my best. Why is all of this happening to me? Do you ever keep a scorecard with God? God, I did this, and I was expecting you to do that. Or, God, I've been faithful to you, and I I kind of figured you owed me this. If we're ones to keep a scorecard, then ask honestly, what does God owe us? If God were to base his goodness towards us on our goodness towards him, then what do you figure we deserve? If we're holding on to or marking our self-righteous scorecards, it is because we are not resting in the gospel. You and I never have to earn God's attention. We never have to earn God's affection. And any favor we have with God is only because of Christ. None of us are shocked by the fact that injustice exists in our world. And theologically, we would all agree that injustice in the world exists because of sin. But let me ask you a question. Are we a little bit shocked when that injustice touches us? When it's not fair? When we think we've deserved better? And while we might not openly admit it, for some reason, many of us believe that God is obligated to protect us from pain and anxiety and suffering and loss, especially in our minds when we feel like we've done all the right things. That's the story of Esther. That's Esther's story. Perhaps Mordecai and Esther are entertaining thoughts, wondering, what did we do to deserve this? perhaps questioning God's providence. I hope that you'll remember this definition of providence. Do you have it? Providence, pro, means what? Ahead of, pro, before, and ventia means to see. So providence, God's providence means that God sees. God sees ahead of you. Today. And God is faithful to see to you tomorrow. That is his providence. He sees ahead of us and he sees to us. God in his providence. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of when his providence seems perplexing. When it's perplexing. Read with me from the book of Esther if you have your Bible Chapter 2, verse 21, through the third chapter. We'll pick up where we left off. Esther, chapter 2, verse 21. In those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathah, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him with homage. Haman was filled with wrath, furious. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province Being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Let's pray. Father, would you in your grace and your goodness give us ears to hear your word and ears to hear your spirit, that you'd speak to us and encourage our faith in you and to trust you with greater trust, with greater faith. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You remember the characters in the story? There are five that are listed: a king named Ahasuerus, a a man of unlimited power, unlimited wealth, a man that ruled the entire world, the the Persian Empire, the Persian Meat Empire. He was self-centered, narcissistic, and he had good evidence he may have had an alcohol problem. He certainly wasn't good at making decisions. That's King Ahasuerus. And then you remember the queen. Queen Vashti, she refused his command and as a result his anger and his fury rages and they have her banished, they remove her as a king and they be surrounded by some advisors who concoct this plan to bring in young virgins from the king and they would be, be prepared for a year going through beauty treatments and then one by one each young virgin would spend the night with the king and the one the king liked best at the end of the process would be the new queen and God's favor rests upon Esther, and while she never chose any of this, God positioned her to be the next queen. And then there's this villain, Haman. He enters the picture in our text today, and again, the cousins Mordecai and Esther. And while never mentioned in the story of Esther, the main character is God. Esther is the only book in the Bible with no reference to God, no references to prayer, no worship of the Lord, nothing mentioned about his word, no prophets, no word from the Lord, no sacrifice, offering, nothing about God is, or even alluded to God is in this story. But make no mistake, God is the main character. God is working behind the scenes, God is working below the surface, God is always working for his glory, and is always working for the good of his people. From a human perspective, if you were to argue the point that all of the injustice that Mordecai and Esther were going through, that none of it was their fault, then I would be inclined to agree with you. It was not their fault that they were living in exile. Years before this time, the Bible says that Mordecai's grandfather, Kish, he was one of the Jews living into the southern kingdom of Judah. And you remember the story in 586, the king Nebuchadnezzar leads the Babylonians and they come and overthrow the southern kingdom and take all of the Jews who had any worth, any value, any education, any skill. They took them all back north into the kingdom of Judah the province of Babylon. Prior to that time, you remember the northern kingdom had already fallen. It had fallen to the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians took the northern Jews all over the northern kingdom of Israel. They'd taken them back into exile. And then, you know, historically, the the uh, Babylonians come in and overthrow the Persians. And so the Babylonians are the ones who took Mordecai's grandfather, Kish, into exile. And So Mordecai, to no fault of his own, was born in Babylon. A young Jew born in Babylon. He grew up in Babylon, lived as an exile in Babylon. The same was true of his young, beautiful cousin Esther. Here they are, Jewish people. The only life they had ever known was living in Babylon, living in Persia. It wasn't their fault that their parents That their parents decided to disobey God, to ignore what God's Word. You remember, we looked at this recently, the prophet Jeremiah, when all of those exiles of the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity. Do you remember, Jeremiah delivered a word to them from the Lord. And he says to them, just as God is sending you, God is sending you into exile, God will also bring you back home to this promised land. Listen to Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I, God, will visit you and I will perform my good word to you and I will cause you to return to this place. What place? He was going to bring them home, back to Jerusalem. And you know this verse, For I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That was God's word to the exiles who were going off into exile in Babylon. It wasn't Mordecai's fault. It wasn't Esther's fault when their parents disobeyed God. You remember when Ezra 1-1, when Cyrus became the new king in Persia? You remember he decreed that all of the Jews could go back home, could return to leave exile and go back to their spiritual roots. They were given the freedom. But most of all of God's people, most of those Jews chose, decided to remain living in Persia, to remain in their comforts. They had blended into the culture. Instead of making the sacrifices necessary to return to their homeland, to the promised land, and live in a right relationship with God, and to return to their spiritual roots, they made a decision to stay comfortable in what was familiar to them it's the same challenge for you and I today. It's always been easier for God's people to blend into the world. You remember Jesus described two different kinds of lifestyles. Jesus said there is an easy lifestyle. It's the the broad road with a big gate, and it's easily accessible, but it's a destructive lifestyle that leads to eternal separation from God. And Jesus said, it's what most people will choose. You remember Jesus said, many, many will make this choice. And then he said, there's another lifestyle. It's less popular Fewer people have chosen it. And Jesus said, this lifestyle, this choice will be difficult. It will be hard. That leads to eternal life with God. And very few will live that lifestyle. Pastorally, I really hope, I really hope that following the Lord Jesus Christ is hard for all of us pastorally, in love. I hope that following the Lord Jesus Christ is very difficult for all of us. You say, well, why do you say that? Because if it's difficult, if it's hard, if it's a challenge, then it's an affirmation that you know the Lord Jesus, that He is leading you, and you're following Him. Woe to us as God's people if living the Christian life is easy, and there's no Cost and there's no demands. Let me ask you this question: How long has it been since you were alone with God in His Word, and God through His Word spoke to you and made a debate a demand upon you that stretched you? How long has that been? Esther in the text, she didn't ask to be taken from Mordecai's home. Esther did not ask to be a participant in this sick kind of sinful beauty pageant. Esther in no way ever planned to win the pageant, and she certainly had no plan to become queen. Mordecai seems like a pretty sincere Jewish brother. He took his young cousin into his care under his wing when her mother and dad died, and the Bible says that Mordecai loved young Esther like he did... As if she was his own daughter, Mordecai does the right thing he cares for, her. and then in our text in verse twenty two there's a plot. you remember? Mordecai, in the king's gate, hears of a plot that a couple of disgruntled servants to the king plan to take matters in their own hands to lay their hands on the king and take his life. Mordecai does the right thing instead of remaining passes he Passes the information along to Queen Esther. And Queen Esther passes it along to King Ahasuerus. And if you look at verse 22 and 23, it says, And the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And here it is. And an inquiry was made into the matter. It was confirmed. And both of these disgruntled servants were hanged on a gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai does the right thing. He saves the king's life, and the assassin's plot is foiled. Mordecai never was rewarded. He never received any recognition. There was no appreciation party. The only thing that says is that his name. And that decree was written into the chronicles of just a tiny notation of what he had done. He'd done the right thing. In fact, as the story unfolds, while Mordecai is overlooked and he's doing the right things, this villain, Haman, gets the promotion. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. In those days, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, advanced him, set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so it was written for so it was recorded. But this Jewish brother, Mordecai, refused to bow, refused to offer homage to Haman. The Bible says that Haman is a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, a Gagite. He's in a, a Gagite. And if If this story was made into a movie and shown in cinemas throughout Persia, all the Jews watching that day would have thrown tomatoes at the screen. Outraged that instead of a good Jewish man like Mordecai being promoted, it goes to a descendant of one of their enemies, Haman. And Mordecai has a problem. He is commanded by the king to honor Haman And he refuses. The Bible says he rebels. Now, why does he rebel? Why does Haman refuse to bow and offer homage to Haman? Well, we're not really told why. Did he refuse to bow before him because he was an Amalekite and an enemy? That's possible. Or did he refuse to bow to him because he desires to remain faithful to God? And from Deuteronomy 6, you remember God's word to his people, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God and you shall worship him and worship him only? I would propose to you maybe it was a little both, perhaps more of the latter, because his rebellion is kind of a soft rebellion. It's kind of a low-key rebellion. Mordecai is not trying to be in Haman's face and to send him a lesson. In fact, Haman doesn't even notice that Mordecai is not bowing before him and offering homage. The only reason that Haman knows about Mordecai's refusal to bow before him is because a couple of other servants, servants make Haman aware of it. Probably a couple of guys stirring up trouble. There's always those kinds of guys around, you know. But once Haman is aware of it, that a Jew named Mordecai refuses to exalt him, the Bible says in verse 5 that Haman is filled with wrath. That sounds like King Ahasuerus in chapter 1, verse 12, when he hears that King, Queen Vashti won't come and perform in front of him and his guests, and Haman, in his rage and in his anger over this one Jewish brother who won't bow and offer homage, in his anger and his rage, instead of going directly to, to Mordecai to resolve things and do the reasonable thing, right, in his rage, Haman thinks the only logical solution to to this problem is total genocide of all the Jews in the world. That's what he proposes. Not just to kill Mordecai and all the Jews in the city, the proposal is an ethnic cleansing throughout the Persian empire of all Jews. I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable, right? Pretty logical. Look at verse 6, it's Haman's plan. And then the next step after the coming up with this sinful plan is to sell the king on it, which seems pretty easy. Look at verses 8 and 9, he, Haman pulls off quite a sales job. Haman said to the king, Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain or to let them live. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king goes along with it. Quite a sales job. Full of exaggeration, full of untruths and lies, coupled with the financial bonuses to all of your servants that carry this out, they will receive a handsome financial commission. And then perhaps... One of the most troubling verses in the whole text is verse 10 and 11 when you see how the king responds to this proposal. It is a total abdication of responsibility on the part of King Lazarus. The most powerful man on the face of the earth is another example that he cannot make a decision and he says to Haman, whatever you think best is fine with me. This king is ruled more by his glands than he is good judgment. Completely without character. It's not the kind of guy you'd want to nominate for a deacon at Hillcrest Baptist Church. And so the wheels are set in motion for an ethnic cleansing. The word is sent out throughout all of the kingdom. Look at verse 13. And it's very clear. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, just to make sure there's no confusion, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, little children and women, and they're to be wiped out in one day, and the day is named, and then to plunder their possessions. Destroy every Jew in the world, kill every Jew, annihilate every Jew, Every one of them, all of them in one day, in one great slaughter on the th- 13th day of the 12th month, so at the end of the year, and after you destroy them, plunder all of their possessions. And verse 14 said, This is the law. They had 11 months to get ready. I propose to you that the decree goes out in verse 12 in the first month and then it's to be executed in the 12th month. That means that the entire Persian Empire has 11 months to prepare for this slaughter, for this ethnic cleansing of God's people. And the Bible says that once this law goes out and it's decreed, that panic and unrest permeates the land. And verse 15 kind of helps us to see how this scene closes. It says that, Haman, and King Ahasuerus sit down together for drinks. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a Jewish family living in the Persian Empire, which is most of the known world. And at the end of that year, on the 14th day of the month, what you normally do as a Jewish family end of the year, the 12th month on the 14th day, your normal practice is to gather with all of your family and to celebrate Passover. Do you remember what Passover is? You and your family would gather together before God and you would worship and you would remember how God had delivered your people from Pharaoh, had brought you out of bondage and slavery, and remembering the blood that was smeared over the doorpost of your home, and how the death angel passed you by. And so every year Jewish families on the 14th day of the last month of the year would gather and celebrate Passover, and then you hear on the 13th day of the month, one day before you would gather to worship the Lord and celebrate His deliverance. Now you're on the day before you're going to be executed. That's the new law. And you have 11 months to get your house in order, 11 months to prepare for your death and the death of your kids and your teenagers and your parents, every Jew, 11 months to prepare. And it's a insane picture. It's total injustice. And there is no way that Mordecai, nor Esther, nor any of God's people could see any of this coming. There's no way they could have ever comprehended that anything like this was even possible. That that God, that God somehow would allow this to occur. But God, and you and I have the advantage of reading the rest of the story. My favorite section in the book of Esther is next week but God in his providence was at work. I want to share a few lessons with you and then make a close and a couple of a closing appeal with you. A couple of just simple lessons from the text and then the main lesson just an appeal at the end. First, do your best each and every day to do what is right. Do your best each day to do what's right, at work, at home, when you're alone. Psalm 37, 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Do good means do what's right. Trust in the Lord and do what's right. Make that right choice. Like Joseph, determine that I'm not going to sin against God, that I'm going to do the right thing today. I'm going to do the right thing tomorrow each and every day of my life and do the right thing with confidence that if no one recognizes you nor rewards your efforts for doing what is right remember God is keeping score and God knows when you've been faithful second try and be good to people be good to people do you think that ever crossed Mordecai's mind once he heard about this assassination plot Do you think it ever crossed his mind that I would just sit on that information, just to remain silent and to be passive and allow the plot to unfold? Paul exhorts the Christians in Galatia, as you have opportunity, be good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As you and I interact with people, whoever the Lord brings into our path, our goal should be to seek their good, not to take advantage of them, not to manipulate them, to always try to advance and and do what's good for other people. Well, Brother Charlie, what about those people who do not seek my good? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus commanded, we are to forgive them, even those who might seek our harm that were still to seek their good. I want you to listen to a couple of verses from Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 14 regarding this point. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse back. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. Boab, do not avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, do them good, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, do good, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The bottom line is the gospel transforms the way we view and treat other people. It transforms the way we view ourselves and then extends to others, even those who may not be working for our good. Third, do not let it surprise you if no one thanks you for following Christ. Don't be surprised if no one thanks you for doing what's right, for doing what's good. Sure, it's nice to be appreciated, but if we have to be okay, if other people never express gratitude to us. Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to their work. God is keeping score. And our efforts and our labors will not be in vain. And last, finally, do not seek your own honor. I think this is a big one. Do not seek your owner or your own honor, contrary to contrary to the flesh, because the flesh always wants attention, the flesh always wants recognition, the flesh always wants praise. In other words, don't toot your own horn. Instead, work to draw attention to other people. Serve to honor them. Listen to these verses about honor: Romans twelve ten. Be kind and affectionate to one another in brotherly love and honor. Honor, demonstrating preference to others. First Peter two seventeen. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. Children are to honor their parents. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way, giving honor to the wife so that your prayers will not go unhindered. Honor is an attitude of holding others in high esteem and of respecting other people. Let's all determine to try to honor people and to think the very best regarding other people and not to question their motives or draw conclusions about What's motivating them and causing them to do things? Honoring people. Let me close. Regarding God's providence, certainly had to be perplexing to Mordecai and Esther and to all the Jews. God's providence in our lives at times will also be perplexing. You will not always understand how God is working in and through all things for your good. It may appear and may feel to be the very opposite. It may appear and it may feel to you that God is removed, that God has left you alone, that God has abandoned you, that God has forgotten you. It may seem at times that God is not hearing your prayers. Theologically, while we know from Scripture that God does not cause sin, God does not cause sinful things. He nonetheless, think about this, he nonetheless sees it ahead of time and he nonetheless allows it, which means in his providence, he is mysteriously working through all of it to advance his purposes for his glory and for our good. I want to invite you to remember four things about God, especially at times in your life where His providence is perplexing. Remember that God is present with you. God is present with you, He is with you. The psalmist declared God's omnipresent. He wrote, Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We are always in God's presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, indwelling us through the Holy Spirit. He is always with you. He never leaves you. Second, God is good. That is his nature. His goodness flows from his holiness and his purity. It is a perfect goodness. The Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus says the Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. The Lord is always with you. The Lord is good. And third, God is at work. John chapter 5, Jesus said of the Father, my Father is always working and He shows me what He's doing. And when the Father shows me what He's doing and when the Father shows me where He's doing it, when He does whatever I see, whatever I become aware of, Jesus says then I join in with Him and do it. God in his providence sees what we cannot see. He sees ahead of us and he is faithful to see to us. And so when life is painful and confusing and it feels unfair and unjust, God invites us to remember that I'm with you and I'm good and I'm working for your good. All things according to your good and for my glory. And so the invitation this morning is when you're going through that trial, that test, and you can't see the future, and you don't understand the outcome that you by faith can say to God, I trust you. And it wouldn't hurt to literally say it to him, Lord, I trust you. And to continue to walk by faith, doing what you know to do until God reveals the next step. I want you to listen to the words from the prophet Habakkuk. Listen to these verses. Though the fig tree never buds and there's no fruit on the vines and though the all of the olive crop fails and the pre- fields produce no food and the flocks all disappear from the pens and there's no herds in the stalls yet I will celebrate the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength; He strengthens my feet like those of a deer, and enables me to walk on the heights of the mountain. He is with you. He is good, and He is always at work. And He calls us to trust Him. Hebrews eleven six right? It says it's impossible except by faith to please God but he is a rewarder of those who believe that he exists and diligently seek him. He honors faith trust him trust the Lord as we prepare to come before the Lord's table I invite you to bow with me in prayer you know something that's far worse than Mordecai's Refusal to honor Haman is when God's people refuse to honor the Lord Jesus. None of us are able to deliver ourselves. We all need to be rescued from our rebellion, just as those God's people needed to be rescued. And though Haman used his money to purchase death, God used Christ's death to purchase our salvation. A price has been paid in full for our deliverance. With all heads bowed, if you're here today and you've never placed your confidence and your trust in Christ and never prayed, God, I'm a sinner, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry for my sins. And I believe that all of the punishment that I deserved for my sin was placed on Christ at the cross for me. And God, you are just and you're faithful to forgive me and cleanse me from all of my sin. And so I place my trust, my faith in you, Lord. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you'll pray that today, God will save you. God will forgive your sins. All of your past can be wiped clean. His mercies, his faithfulness are new towards us every day. And God will give you a fresh start and give you a new life and indwell you with his spirit and add you to his kingdom to adopt you into his family as a son, as a daughter of the king. You can pray that prayer today if God's speaking to you. And Hillcrest, I want to encourage you this morning to trust the Lord. To trust Him. To trust His presence, His goodness, His faithfulness. And trust that He is at work in your life. Working all things together for good and for His glory. Will you trust Him? He's called us to come to his table regularly and as we come, he says, I want you to come as a constant reminder to you of what I've done for you in Christ at the cross, lest you would never forget that as you take the cup and as you drink it and as you take the bread and receive it, that it would be a reminder of my body and my blood that was given for you, that you could be forgiven and have a right relationship with God.